let's read the, uh, the words of the Lord. Uh, my sermon today is from Genesis chapter 10, <clears throat> but let's read from Genesis chapter 9, verse 18 to 28 first, then follow with Genesis chapter 10. Verse 18, the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from this, the people of the, of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his younger son had done to him. He said, Curse be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of shame, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Genesis chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Maseh, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer, Astanas, Rifath, and Togama. The sons of Javan, Elisa, Tarsus, Kittim and Dondanim. From this, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cus, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cus, Seba, Hafila, Sapta, Rama, and Saptika. The sons of Rama, Seba, and Dedan. Cus fathered Nimrod, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Iraq, Akkad, and Kalneh in the land of Sina. From that land, he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth, Ir, Kela, and Resen between Nineveh and Kela, that is the great city. Egypt fathered Ludim, Ananim, Lehabim, Naphtulim, Naphtuhim, Patrusim, Tasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Taphtorim. Canaan fathered Sidon, 
his firstborn and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gigasites, the Hephites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Alphadites, the Semarites, and the Hematites. Afterwards, the clans of the Canaanites disperse, and the territory of the Canaanites extend from Sidon to the direction in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Atma, and Sebuim, as far as Lhasa. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Aser, Arpasat, Lut, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hu, Gether, and Mas. Arpasat fathered Selah, and Selah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of one was Pelek. For in his day, the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almodat, Seleph, Hasar Mafet, Jera, Hadoram, Usau, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Hafila, and Jobat. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they live extended from Mesa in the direction of Sipha to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Let's bow down our head in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your precious words. For all these, all scriptures are profitable for teaching and reproof. We thank you, Lord, for giving us your words. We pray today, Lord, that you open our hearts and our mind that we may understand what you have given to us, your words to be able to be applied in our life and our world. So, Lord, we pray for your wisdom to us. We pray that you lead us to understand it. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. When it was my turn to prepare my next sermon, I was confronted, as you see, with this Genesis chapter 10. The entire chapter lists names and people whom we no longer know or care about and not to say. Names difficult even to pronounce them. Right? Difficult to pronounce them. I certainly struggle to think what lessons we could draw from a passage like this. And how could it be applicable for us today? I consulted many commentaries, of course, but most commentaries are more interested to give comments on the general outline of the colonies and settlements into which the first families of Noah's race spread themselves. Some go further 
to fill in the details on how these early families relate to the current races and nations of the world, which is often little better than matter of conjecture, founded on remote and doubtful analogies of words and names. Nevertheless, still with a great hope, I turned to the commentary by Dr. C.H. Leopold because every chapter in his commentary includes a section with hints for preaching the passage under consideration. When it came to Genesis 10, Dr. Leopold says, it may be, I quote, it, it may be, it may very well be questioned whether a man should ever preach on a chapter such as this. End quote. It was not very encouraging, right? Although I must confess that I was inclined to agree with him. But yet it is a part of the words of God which is all profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. And I am glad to be in a church that is eager to hear God's word proclaimed in its entirety. So, although this may not be one of the most interesting and exciting passages of Scripture for us, I should not, in any case, bypass it. It does surely provide us with some important insights into God's plan of salvation for mankind and the history of the human race. If we look at Matthew and Luke Gospels, what do we see? Matthew actually begins his Gospel with a genealogy. The first words in his Gospel are the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And Luke, gospel also has a genealogy at the heart of it. Luke chapter 3 verse 23 says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, etc. So what are these telling us? Obviously, it tells us that there is no gospel of Jesus Christ apart from these genealogies because God has determined in eternity past to accomplish our redemption progressively in human history through an elect line of every generation up to the birth of Jesus Christ. That is the purpose. Keeping in view the religious and spiritual purpose of our passage this morning, let me begin by making several general brief observations about this list of people, places, and nations. Genesis 10 is the most ancient record we possess of the roots of the nations. William F. Albright is not a conservative Christian archaeologist when he wrote his book, 
said in his book that this chapter stands absolutely alone in ancient literature without a remote parallel even among the Greeks where we find the closest approach to the distribution of peoples in genealogical framework. The table of nations remains an astonishingly accurate document. And that is from an archaeologist. Genesis 10 is a genealogy, but not in the sense of Genesis 5, which we have come across, which traces the descent from father to son. That is Genesis 5. Rather, in Genesis 10, it contains individual names, place names, and many names of tribes, so not father to son. Thus, it is not just tracing individual histories, but the development of nations, especially as they related to Israel at the time of the conquest of Canaan. We must remember that the book of Genesis was originally written not to us, but by Moses to ancient Israel after they had been redeemed from Egypt. While it is difficult for you and I to recognize the names in this list and to visualize where in the world these people resided, it would not have been so difficult for the ancient Israelites. As they heard these names, they would have recognized them and they would have been able to visualize where in the world these people lived. So, once again, let me emphasize that it is not meant to be a complete catalog of all nations, for that is not the purpose, but rather a list that would help Israel understand the origins of the people they would encounter during the conquest, especially in the light of Noah's prophecy. Chapter 10 is divided between the descendants of Japheth, Ham, and Shem. The descendants of Japheth are listed first, probably because they were the most remote and thus the least important to Israel, not because they are the, he is the eldest uh, son. It is not necessarily because Japheth is the eldest son. Right? The list is also the shortest of the three. The line of Shem is listed last because they will occupy the rest of the book of Genesis, as you will see later. Now let's start with the line of Japheth. Can I have the map? <clears throat> Sorry, I don't have the pointer because my pointer spoiled this morning. So now let's start with the line of Japheth. It is generally agreed that the Europeans are descended from Japheth. Gomers, Javans, and Tyrus descendants move into what is now uh, Europe. Magog, Tubal, and Maset move north into what is now Russia then. <clears throat> and Madai was the ancestor of the Medes and Persians who eventually migrated into India, as you know that. Thus, the Indo-European languages are related. The linguistic study 
has found that Sanskrit, the famous language Sanskrit, the ancient language of India, which has been extinct for a long time, is one of the earliest languages that is at the base of both Eastern and Western languages. So that is what from the study. The sons of Ham spread out primarily towards Africa. Kus refers to Ethiopia, as you know, which is often mentioned in the Old Testament. The famous son of Kus is Nimrod. He moved east into the area of Babylon and Nineveh. Egypt in the ESP is actually Misraim in the original Hebrews. And put probably refers to Libya. Canaan, of course, is the inhabitants of the land of Palestine during the conquest. Now, how about the Oriental races and the Mongol? We may wonder because if you see the map, it's all in the Western side, right? So how about the Eastern people? Well, they may be omitted, as I have mentioned, that it is not meant to be a complete catalog of all nations. But there is a conjecture based on analogies of words and names, as also I have mentioned, that they may be related to the Sinites in verse 17, if you see your Bible, Sinites, right? Which seems to still preserve in the words Sino, right? Sino-American, Sino-Vax, as you know. So it is in reference to China. Another possibility is that some of the Hittites which is the descendants, the Sinites is also descendants of Canaan. Hittites is also descendants of Canaan. Called Heth, right? In the ESV in verse 15. When the empire fell, the Hittites, when the empire fell, fled eastwards into China. You see, the words Hittites has also been spelled Kite, from which may come the words Kate, Kate. Cathay Pacific, right? Another designation of China. These are all possibilities based on analogies of words and names, as I mentioned. The boundaries of Canaan's territory are clearly described in verse 19 because that is important to Israel as they are to conquer later. Now for the sons of Shem, Eber is named separately at the beginning of the list in verse 21 although he is not the direct son of Shem, actually, but the great-grandson for his father was Sila, the son of Arpasat. So Eber is the grandson of Shem. The reason that Eber is listed first may be because the words Hebrew probably comes from Eber. Elam was the ancestor of the Elamites who lived in southeast of Mesopotamia. Aser was apparently the founder of Assyrians. As you know, there is an Assyrian king named Aser Banipal, but whether Aser is the ancestral name or not, I'm not certain. Okay. Apasad was in the line leading to Abraham, so later you will find. Uh, him again 
Lut was probably the Lut bull of the Assyrians situated in the Tigris River. Aram is the name of the Aramean tribes, which we often uh, encounter in the Old Testament, right? Now, the name Pelek is interesting. You, you see, verse 25 explains that in his days, in Pelek's day, the earth was divided. And Pelek in Hebrew means divided. Most likely, this refers to the dividing of the nations at Babel, mentioned later in chapter 11. God willing is my next sermon about the Tower of Babel. If Nimrod built Babylon, as verse 10 seems to imply, saying the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, so Perhaps he will. Be, he is the one that built Babylon. Then God could have scattered the nations in his time, after which he moved north and built Nineveh. Nimrod was a contemporary of Eber, and Eber named his son Pelek. So Pelek is the son of Eber, or divided when he saw what God did to Babel. So when Eber saw what God did to Babel, then he named his son Pelek. Uh, Some scientists have suggested that this division of nations is a reference to continental drift or the division of the earth. The idea that the continents were once together in one great continent but then drifted apart. Well, there is scientific evidence to support that theory, although most would date it far earlier, obviously, for the scientists mean millions of years earlier than the event at the Tower of Babel. It is interesting, though, that the Greek words for sea, sea, is palagos where we get our English words, archipelago, right? So if there was a catastrophic upheaval that caused continents move apart and the seas broke in on the land in Pelek's day, then the analogy between Pelek's name and the Greek words pelagos, meaning sea, would make sense, right? So you see that? Well, okay. With that as the general observation of the passage, let's now draw the spiritual lessons of the passage. Firstly, we learn that all nations are of one blood and have one knee. Acts chapter 17 verse 26 says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Rao aptly commented, it it reminded the Israelites that God had made of one blood all the nations of the earth and that the heathen who knew not Jehovah, were nevertheless 
brethren of Israel. It reminded him that his own nation was only one among the nations of the earth by origin and in no way separated from them, but only by the grace of God selected and chosen to be the bearer of his revelation to the world, end quote. But sadly, if God had made of one, had made of one blood all the nations of the earth, why then the history of mankind has been one of power struggles in every level of society and among nations? We heard news of wars, even now, and terrorism so often. Why? Why? Well, because people are quick to forget the oneness of the human race. We are quick to divide from one another and to oppress one another. And underline it is due to the fact that the one human race has one basic need. God has said to Noah after the flood, the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. That is Genesis chapter 8 verse 21. We would think that a judgment as catastrophic as the flood would cause people to fear God for many generations after. Yet here we see a table of nations with no hints that any of them worship the one true God. Not even the family of Terah of the chosen line of shame, mind you, until God called Abraham. You see, D.J. Wiseman, a Christian archaeologist again, says, I quote, religion in Babylonia that is where the city Ur of the Chaldean, the birthplace of Abraham, is located. At this time was polytheism of the grossest type, he said, grossest type. More than 300 distinct gods were worshipped. And he continued, according to Jewish tradition, Abraham's father, i.e. Terah, traded in these idols and this polytheism was a feature of Abraham's early home life from which he revolted. End quote. You see, people are quick to forget the oneness of the human race because they are quick to forget the one true God who created them all whom they have to worship. The Apostle Paul sharply reminds us in Romans chapter 3, the last part of verse 22 and verse 23, there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no distinction whether you are Jews, the chosen people of God, the Gentile or the cursed generation of Canaan, all have sinned and condemned in the face of God. 
We all, you and I, need to repent of our sin, pride, and prejudice, and receive God's forgiveness and be reconciled again to God through his gospel of reconciliation. That is the one need of all the nations of mankind. When we remember that no other nation ever touched the brotherhood of man, but racism and xenophobic, we can surely see divine inspiration in this chapter. No man can write such a chapter. Right? Secondly, all nations have only one way of salvation. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Apostle Peter repeated again later before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 4, verse 12 saying, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have insulted the God who created us and gave the law for us to live. Therefore, no man can achieve salvation for themselves because they are the ones who have sinned and gotten into trouble in the first place. On the other hand, salvation must be achieved by man. For man is the one who has wronged God and who therefore must make the wrong right. So, what can be done then? Obviously, only God can save us, but man who must make the wrong rights and achieve salvation. Given this situation, salvation can only be achieved by one who is both God and man. That is by Jesus Christ. Christ alone can satisfy Jesus Christ, who is both God and man, is the only one way of salvation for all people and nations. God wants all to hear, and not only for the people of the present day, but also for all those people and nations before Christ. Well, it is true that they never heard about salvation through Christ, but as Apostle Paul tells us in his sermon at Lystra, which is recorded for us in Acts chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, he said, And in generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways, and yet he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness and food. God did not leave himself without witness. His witness was around those people. If they would seek him, verse 27 says, 
he is actually not far from each one of them. Well, I must admit that this is difficult to understand. But we know that God will be fair and just with every person. The real question that you have to ask is that, what about us who have heard? Come to Christ. Repent of your sins and receive his forgiveness. Then we must tell others the message of salvation for every family, language, land, and nation. That is our duty. Right, finally, our passage this morning tells us the earliest stages of the development of the redemption story. The incident recorded respecting Noah and his family gives a picture. It's a picture of the church in its beginning. So the prophecy on his sons, which follows, reveals to us the church in its progress. The curse and blessings Noah pronounced upon his sons set the trajectory for the rest of history of God's redemptive purposes. God is beginning to unfold his plan of salvation here. It is first illustrates the ongoing struggle between sin and grace in the fallen world, between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. The three sons of Noah would represent three distinct groups of people in relation to God's program of redemption. Canaan, the son of Ham, was cursed. Shem was blessed. And Japheth was blessed by his association with Shem. So you see how is this picture. What do the curse and blessings pronounced by Noah communicate concerning God's plan of redemption from the days of Noah onward? What does that communicate to us? Well, they tell the story of the accomplishment of our salvation. The accomplishment of our salvation began with a judgment upon the servant, serpent, as you know, Eve and Adam three, serpent, Eve, and Adam. And embedded within those judgments was a promise. And it also involved the fulfillment of that promise in human history. God promised to accomplish our salvation through the offspring of the woman. And he was also faithful to bring it to pass. The scriptures tell that story. The story of the ongoing struggle between sin and grace, between the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. There are those who belong to God, who are concerned to live for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom on earth. And there are those who belong to the evil one, who are concerned to promote their own glory or to make a name for themselves and to advance the kingdom of his world. 
The line of Ham is characterized by the insatiable desire to establish kingdoms where man rules as supreme, independent of and in constant rebellion against the God of heaven. That is Ham descendant. They are the continuation of the line of Cain in the new world. In the line of Ham, we notice Nimrod, right? Who in God's estimation was a mighty man of the earth. The most influential man on the earth. Verse 9 says, he was a mighty hunter before the law. At first glance, it might seem that Nimrod was the man of the Lord since he was called a mighty hunter before the Lord. However, the Hebrew word before can also be translated against if you can check the strong concordance. Nimrod is a mighty hunter against the Lord. He was a conqueror a man hunter. He was the founder of both Babylon and Nineveh, which later, if you keep reading the Old Testament, became enemies and conquerors of Israel. Nimrod was a nephew of Canaan who was cursed by Noah. So Nimrod himself is not cursed, only Canaan. And James Montgomery Boyce, I think you know him very well. Imagine Nimrod, who would have been aware of this curse, saying, I don't know about, I, I quote, I don't know about the others, but I regard this matter of the curse of God on Canaan as a major disgrace on my family, one that needs to be erased. Did God say that my uncle Canaan would be a slave? I'll fight that judgment. I'll never be a slave. What's more, I'll be the exact opposite. I'll be so strong that others will become slaves to me. Instead of slave, I'll make them say, here comes Nimrod, the mightiest man on earth. End quote. This is the James Boyce imagination. So you can see how man is re- rebel against God. Let it be recognized that the impulse of fallen and simple man has always been to build cities and kingdoms for themselves and for their own glory. And if you remember, Cain is the first one to build a city before the flood. I have mentioned this. However, the scripture also tells the story of God's grace and faithfulness by electing, calling, and preserving a people for himself in the fallen world. And it was through this people that the Christ eventually came to pay the price for our sins. Remember the blessing pronounced upon Shem by Noah. Genesis chapter 9 verse 26 says, He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, 
and let Canaan be his servant. From shame, from shame, Eber would be born. And from Eber, the Hebrews would descend, as you know. This will become clearer in Genesis chapter 11 and 12, when God calls Abram, one of Eber's descendants, we will see later. In Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 to 3, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Brethren, God's purpose from the beginning was to save a people for himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. The Savior would come into the world through one particular people, namely the Hebrew people. And it would be through the Hebrew people that all nations of the earth would be blessed. Salvation is not done by God through supernatural force coming down from heaven, zapping all of you, but by one of us. Now, thirdly, the blessing that God pronounced upon Japheth in Genesis chapter 9, verse 27 says, May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. The blessing upon Japheth communicates that in due time, the tent of Shem will be open to Japheth, so that he might come in and enjoy the blessing that belong uniquely to Shem, to Shem. Who are the descendants of Japheth? In Genesis chapter 10, verse 5, the descendants of Japheth is called the Coslan people by the ESP. Or in the King James Bible, they are called the Gentiles or foreign nations, which you often heard after this, right, in the Old and the New Testament. The Gentiles. So Robert Tenlis commented, who can fail to recognize in this prediction the calling of the Gentiles who spring from Japheth and the preparation of the world for the first preaching of the gospel. When the Gentiles were invited to be fellow heirs with the Jews of the grace of life, Japheth began to dwell in the tents of Shem. This was God's design. From the very beginning. Let me now conclude my sermon. Cornelius van der Waal says, I quote, Soon the revelation of the Lord was to be restricted to the circles of Abraham's descendants. But before this revelation bids the nation farewell, all of them pass once more in review. End quote in this chapter 10. That is what we have right here, right? In chapter 10. And in just one more chapter, 
we are going to be introduced to the father of Abram. And then from that chapter on, we will be concentrating on one family and its descendants for the rest of the book of Genesis. The book is going to lay a tremendous stress on the separation of God's people from the unbelieving world around them. But this, is, this does not mean that God's people may look upon the unbelieving world and even nations which are at enmity with them with the lack of concern or indifference. No. So, Professor Griffith Thomas has this to say. Viewed from the standpoint of the Jewish, of the Jews, it is clear that the Gentile nations arose from Japheth. This early reference to the nations, to use the Hebrew phrase of later books, is very significant and shows that amid all the Jewish exclusiveness, the Old Testament never loses sight of the great fact of universality and God's purposes for all the world. It was the crowning sin of the Jews in later ages that they forgot this and concentrate attention upon themselves as the chosen people of God, stopping short of the great truth of their revealed religion that they were chosen only for the purpose of being the instrument and channel of God's mercy and grace to the nations of the whole earth, end quote. That is the truth, right? God said through prophet Ezekiel in chapter 18, verse 4, Behold, all souls are mine. Here then is our great charter of worldwide evangelization. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age says our beloved Lord Jesus Christ after his resurrection. Let's remind ourselves that we are chosen only for the purpose of being the instrument and channel of God's mercy and grace to others who are not believed yet around us. Let's bow down our head in 